Welcome to Counterplan, a podcast that explores and challenges the way our government and society functions. I'm Elijah Buchanan. I'm Walker Kerr. And I'm James Bendley. Um, and today, we, um, also, since we're all Congress debaters, wanted to talk a bit about this year's mock Congress season. And for those of you who don't know, um, we're going to have Walker explain what that event is and how it works. Okay, so what exactly is mock Congress or congressional debate? So all of us are part of the Pocatello Speech and Debate team, and we love doing the debate type called congressional debate. And so on its most basic terms, what congressional debate is, is when you get about anywhere from 10 to 20 kids in a room, and they are all competitors within this room. And so in congressional debate, yes, 16 is around the ideal. And you go in, you'll have anywhere from one to three judges, depending on the tournament. And then you'll have one parliamentarian. The parliamentarian is an adult in the round, preferably one who has coached or done Congress in the past, just to keep the round following the rules and going how it's supposed to. And then you elect a presiding officer from amongst the students who are participating within the round. And the presiding officer, their job is to time speeches, time out questioning, and use the gavel to direct the rest of the kids to know when their time starts and stops, and pretty much to keep the round running along with the parley. And then with that, your speeches are around three minutes long each, and then for the first two speeches on a piece of legislation, there's a two-minute questioning period. Every speech after that, it's a one-minute questioning period, and... With that, congressional debate, usually the rounds average around three hours. Some tournaments have longer rounds that are four hours, and some have shorter rounds that are only two hours long. But essentially, you know, depending on how we end up working with the times regardless, it's just essentially a mock version of real Congress, but with different times. Yes, and to simulate Congress, when you get in the room, you get sworn in, you have to do everything and try to simulate Congress. We all have placards that we're usually given at the tournament, and if not, they you usually have one from previous tournaments. And so there's everyone has placards, and the way that it works is you... Well, at some tournaments it really depends. Some tournaments there is a set docket, which means that the order that bills are discussed is already set before you go into the round. And then at most of the tournaments like state or nationals, it's not a set docket, and so you actually set it in the round. And there are several methods of doing this, but pretty much you just end up choosing the, way, the order that the bills will go in in a fair manner that gets all schools the inputs on what bills they want. And then with that, you go through the motion of beginning debate, and then you move on to the authorship speech, and then you just go through the debate. You usually get through two or three cycles of af nag, although sometimes there's no nag or there's no af, and so you end up getting a lopsided and then just motioned a previous question, which is just the motion to vote on the piece of legislation. And generally speaking, the... Parley should never intervene in a round after the PO is elected. Typically not, but... Yeah, in an ideal round. Yeah. In an ideal round. And (laughs) that kind of gets into, you know, technicalities of how the rules of Congress work, but um, what we kind of wanted to talk about today was the bills from congressional debate, because a lot of the time, um, those dockets, you know, they're written typically by us, you know, um, Yes, most of the bills... They try to keep most bills student-submitted, unless it's sometimes at official tournaments or NSDA tournaments, they like to try and use the NSDA docket, but really it's just a fallback if there aren't any student-written bills. And so today we wanted to discuss kind of the student-written bills that we liked and the ones we didn't like, and yeah. And use that to assess how we kind of want to change up our game with bills in the future. So uh, first we're going to go around the circle here, although... Obviously, you guys can't see the circle, and um, we're going to have each of us, first Walker, then me, then James, talk about what bills we thought were the most interesting, had the best debate, etc. And so the first one I wanted to bring up to discuss with you guys was one of my favorites and has been one of my favorites since our teammate wrote it way back when he like was first starting congressional debate, and that is it wasn't the... way back. It was only like a year and a <laughs> half, maybe two years ago. 
don't know. Yeah, but it was it was when Daniel first actually started liking Congress, and so our teammate wrote a bill to eliminate insider trading by members of Congress. This bill pretty much introduced new consequences to the already existing Stock Act of 2012. And so instead of the original consequences of the Stock Act, which were something like first violation means that you have to pay $500. So just a minute here before you get into the what it added on to the Stock Act. Like it's been a while since I debated this bill and obviously you're you're better versed in it than me and probably better than our viewers. What exactly is the Stock Act? So the Stock Act was a piece of legislation introduced in 2012, um, I believe shortly after the big scandal with um, Mary Stewart, where they found that she had traded stocks illegally on insider information that only she was privy to. Okay. And so the Stock Act was kind of in response to that, but moreover just trying to solve an existing problem within Congress where members of Congress were trading on information that only they and the business owners had and using it for their own personal financial gain. And so the Stock Act originally, the violation, the only really enforcement behind violation was a $500 like fine per violation, which um, was way less than... Yeah, um, I pulled up some of the information and actually... When we're talking here, it's actually just $200 per violation, which now obviously for senators and representatives trading in hundreds of thousands of dollars of stocks, that's nothing. It's just expensive doing business at that point. Yeah, and then a lot of the articles I was reading beforehand were also showing how um, even most of the time they could the senators were getting out of it and being found not guilty of, it, of violating the act. And so our teammate made this bill, which makes it so that instead of just a fine of $200, it reads in Section 2, if a member of Congress violates the Stock Act on their first violation, said member will lose any leadership positions within Congress. On the second violation, said member will lose any and all committee assignments. And then on the third violation, said member will be expelled. And so it made the consequences much more real and much more severe, which I found really fun to debate. <laughs> so, and uh, one of the main problems with the Stock Act of 2012 was, so it banned politicians and it gave fines, but politicians' family members were still allowed to do insider trading, boosting their wealth. It's like saying, tell me you're going to do something thing. And then not do it. Yeah. And what I find interesting about that is that the fact that a loophole existed, um, like the senators and representatives who were being regulated here were the ones who wrote in that loophole. Yes. Um, which I just think is funny. But um, one question that I've got because you've debated this bill more than me, Walker, um, okay. is what were the biggest neg arguments that you saw in this bill? So the biggest arguments that I found against it, and some of them were actually really good arguments, um, I think the most brought up argument against it was that it would be just like the Stock Act and would just end up having those same loopholes that it had previously, which are legitimate arguments because it doesn't solve the loopholes in the first one. It just makes the like punishment oh, harsher. So, it so the biggest family members. Yeah. So the biggest argument oh. against the bill that was written by our teammate was that it was just going to not effectively change anything because the senators and Congress members would still just be able to get out. A big argument that was used last year for this stock for the stock act was politicians could potentially share information with businesses to inform them about a about recessions, which obviously, if you know anything about the federal government, that's not really how it works. But that argument I found interesting by Sabalovic. I feel like that's like still a legitimate argument, likely, because um, the Federal Res the Treasury and Federal Reserve, um, along with some large banks that they consult with, actually, private banks, recently came out with a statement predicting that we'll enter a recession by November. So, like, politicians being able to call that ahead of the general populace, um, I feel like that is a probably a pretty legitimate argument here. 
though obviously you can come up back and say, you know, harsher punishments here ensures that that's less likely to happen. But uh, What were the largest arguments on the affirmation you saw from other teams and other people? So the biggest arguments I saw from other teams and other people in affirmation of this bill, I mean, a lot of them used Martha Stewart as an example, like a lot of them, including Daniel's authorship speech that was written for the bill. And so that was a common point was just the fact that they normally get out of it. A lot of people had that same piece of evidence talking about how like nine out of every 10 senators who are convicted are found not guilty or are able to somehow or another get out of paying the charge. Moving on to some other bills that we like. So my favorite bills, I actually picked two for this. Um, and I'm just going to try and do like half the time on each of them. But the first one was a bill that it actually wasn't a bill. It was a resolution to recommend that the death penalty and life sentence be interchangeable by choice of the defendant once convicted guilty. So a real mouthful of a title, but very descriptive. And this was one submitted by Rigby High School. I believe it was Jake Maine who was the author and really fun debater. Anyone who knows him um, and if he's listening to this, you're awesome. But uh, this bill, I really liked it personally because it had fantastic debate. Um, and it was also one that I could reliably argue either af or neg and yeah. <laughs> I get think, good speeches. Yeah, after that, I found that after a while as well, just the fact that there was good debate on either side and you could always find new points. Like, other representatives always, or a lot of them just used the same points over and over, but I found that every tournament we were able to find new points and arguments yeah. for and against that resolution. Yeah, and it was really, it had very diverse arguments on it, and before we dig into those, just quick summary of the bill. Um, it was a resolution instead of a bill. So this is when Congress, instead of writing new legislation, they simply state their opinion on something and what they're advocating for. So it requires two-thirds of Congress instead of just you know 51%. And the resolution simply stated several reasons for the fact that Congress recommended that states um, allow a defendant who has been convicted guilty of either a life sentence or um, life without parole to choose between the two. So say you're convicted to uh, the death penalty, you can instead choose to do life without parole or vice versa. And what I really loved about this bill was that you got both pragmatic, like economic arguments for, oh, death row, super expensive, um, you know, false, false convictions happen, and some other arguments um, dealing with like the fact that someone who might want to fight for their innocence might have a better time um, doing so on life without parole than the death row. But then it also mixed that with moral arguments, like people arguing that the death penalty is a cruel and unusual punishment, that bodily autonomy means that we shouldn't be giving anyone the death penalty and things like that. And it was a really fascinating conversation. It was also brought up about constitutionality of the resolution. Yeah. Um, one of our teammates, Representative Paulus, brought up that the Delaware Supreme Court decided that a jury of your peers had to make the final decision. Well, like, if you're giving the defendant the final decision on death penalty or life without parole, then it's not really the jury having the final say. Yeah. Yeah, and that was one of the... That one was, like, my favorite argument, and lots of different representatives brought that up. Paula's did it really well. Um, but was just, like, the fact... And I wouldn't have even suspected this at first when reading through the resolution, but the fact that people got into whether or not this undermines judge discretion, whether this undermines the jury, which is mm -hmm. already a significantly um, undermined aspect of our legal system and various other, various other really fascinating 
negative arguments. I like interesting and really cool that people did take it like how you were saying in the two different aspects where they had or like the many different aspects where they had the economic and they had morality and ethics and also yeah when Paula started bringing up the fact that it undermined the jury <clears throat> after that first time that we kind of used that in session I saw that come up a lot more well, in argumentation. Well it's a good point and people got spicy on it um we don't have time to like do this bill do this resolution justice so like you know if anyone wants to see like say an entire episode on this resolution then just write in and ask for it or send in a boost but um y'all good if i move on then to the second one yeah let's talk about the next this one um this feels a little self-centered for me to say but this other one was a bill that i wrote So I submitted two bills this year that I really loved. The first one was dealing with cryptocurrency regulation. And that one was a little poorly written on my part. And I'd love to talk about it. But I think it needed its own episode. It would need its own episode. And plus, it also had some issues in the way I wrote it that I want to fix next year. But the one that I feel like got better debate because people knew more... um, was a bill to repeal the Jones Act. So if anyone here doesn't know, the Jones Act is this century-old law written back in, like, 1914. Um, Well, actually, I might have the year slightly wrong on whether it was 1914, but it was early. No, it was right after World War II, so it was actually 1919, but... Or 1920, around that time. And what this bill did was it made it so that if you want to move merchandise from one part of the U.S. to another on a ship, then that ship had to be entirely U.S. built, U.S. manned, U.S. owned, and U.S. flagged, which is a really, really harsh restriction. Like if you want to move, say, say you want to ship some oil from Texas to Puerto Rico because Puerto Rico has massive energy crisis issues, You can't do it if that ship was made in, say, South Korea, who has a really large shipbuilding industry. Um, And my bill essentially just removed that law. It got fantastic argumentation, especially in semifinals at state debate. Was ooh, it was so spicy. We we spent an entire hour on the bill, and people loved it. So yeah, I believe I think in. Paula's and I chamber we talked we did that as well in semis and I got to take the nag and I had some pretty good articles just about the economic like I believe I still believe like I'm on the aft side in general but where the nag was open I took it and talked about the jobs provided through the act and the Mm -hmm. economic like the economic boost that comes from the act each year like how much money it makes each year which again are probably don't out like realistically outweigh the benefits of removing the act but it was it just sparked good argument in the realm it did have good argument because the jobs thing so the basic premise of the jones act is that so in world war one the u.s had a problem where all of our um so all of our shipping or at least a lot of it consisted of foreign-built ships, some of whom had some, you know, foreign loyalties. And so when war broke out in Europe, a lot of them, you know, left the U.S. to go fight in Europe, and that hurt our shipping industry there for a little while. And so the thinking was, well, if we make it so we can only use ships built in the U.S., then it will protect them, which... um, one of the best, oh my gosh, one of the best analogies for this I ever heard was by this political comedian named Andrew Heaton, who phrased it as, at one point, Jibby Lube, Jiffy Lube broke down and we couldn't fix our oil. So we decided to mandate that everyone has to learn how to change their own oil and we can't have any more Jiffy Lubes. So... Like in in the bill, it tries to protect the shipping industry and protect those jobs, but at the end of the day, it doesn't because it makes it harder and more expensive to build ships. But and also, it increases shipping. For example, I found an article from Farm Progress that showed that it costs three thousand dollars to ship 
soybeans to Japan. No, it costs three thousand dollars to ship soybeans to the East Coast, like cities like New York, Boston, mm-hmm. like we're talking about mid the Midwest soy producing country. Yep. But it only costs seventeen hundred to ship to Japan. No. Mm-hmm. And you also have the fact that was that was actually that was a card that you cut, and that was so useful in rounds. <laughs> Just to show people the fact that it literally doubled people's shipping costs. Um, one of my other favorite arguments here was the economic... Well, not the... Sorry. Not the economic argument. The environmental argument. Because shipping is one of the... One of the cleanest forms of movement of goods that we have. Because um, there's actually some statistics. Um, this was from a study in 2018. That showed that on average, shipping produces 10 to 40 grams of carbon per one ton of carbon one ton of cargo carried one kilometer which in contrast railroads produced 20 to 150 grams for moving the same amount of stuff and um trucking which is our dominant form of moving merchandise in the u.s was 60 to 150 grams so because we've killed off our shipping industry we can't use the more environmentally friendly forms of, um, of well shipping. Another article I found from the American Enterprise Institution showed that the restrictions on shipping have hurt the United States shipping industry, which makes it more expensive for oil companies to uh, ship oil to certain parts of the United States, mm-hmm. like parts of. California increasing the price for all of us. That's why you kind of saw when we put sanctions on Russia for the invasion of Ukraine, gas prices rose in our area. Gas. Yeah. The Jones Act makes it so the United States is more reliant on Saudi Arabia and Russia and other oil producing nations like we're not exactly friends with Saudi Arabia. We just want oil prices to stay stable. Yeah. So there's a lot we can dig into on this bill, um, but I feel like we've probably already gone long enough on it. So, James, you had a fantastic choice that you made for your favorite one. So let me get to it, guys. <laughs> so it was a resolution to, re- to discourage Scotland's independence. I mainly chose this as my favorite because as I might sympathize with the Scottish independence movement, there's definitely a lot of obstacles. Like, if you notice the whole independence thing, it is based on self-determination. But independence isn't exactly what self-determination means in international law. You have, it's usually understood for autonomy. Mm -hmm. And more on that is... Well, so Scotland was offered independence in like 2014, if I'm correct. So they found that Russia had some involvement in that. Mm-hmm. And also Scotland voted no. And only did the Scottish independence movement become more popular due to Brexit. So sorry to cut you off here, but before we dig more into that, could you give... I'm not as familiar with the Scottish independent movement as you are. Like, I, I cut two cards of evidence for this bill while you cut 17. So, Come if on. you could give us a quick overview of what the Scottish independent movement is. So, basically, the Scot- Scotland used to be an independent kingdom before it united with England and Wales. But Scotland did a bad investment strategy in Panama, mm-hmm. got into a lot of debt... And England refused to pay for it or even help Scotland if Scotland didn't join. So, Scottish independence is more reliant on the fact that they were, quote-unquote, coerced into being a part of the United Kingdom. And now, the Scottish language, historically, the Scottish language has been oppressed by Scottish lords and the United Kingdom government. Scotland wants to have its own culture, and many people believe that the best way to do that is for an independent state. That's why you see, like, the Scottish Nationalist Party saying, we must have an independent state now. I did not know about that debt thing, dude. That's really cool. So, okay, so that's awesome. 
Um, thank you for the overview. Okay, now now get back into that juicy stuff on <laughs> arguments for and against. So, the main reason why Scotland wants independence now is because Brexit will economically hurt it. Did. And we notice how states like Kosovo that have broken away from Serbia, countries that make up the EU have to approve it unanimously. And Spain has an independence movement called the Catalan Independence Movement, or Catalonia, if some people might know. They want to join the EU. They want independence. They, Spain believes that Scotland gains independence without Britain's approval. This will set a bad precedence for them, that Catalonia can join the EU, the Basque Country can join the EU, and Span- Spanish authority is pretty much just screwed. Because most of Spanish Spain's economy is in Catalonia, of course. Dang. So this resolution, um, it expressed specific like discouragement against Scotland, yeah. Scotland's independence. So, which side did you personally take on this resolution? And can you give us an overview of like both the affirmative and so negation arguments? So I didn't go to the tournament where this was discussed, but. The overview of negation arguments, I found articles about the Troubles, the EU, I found arguments how most people in the United Kingdom regret Brexit, I found arguments Mm -hmm. about the weakening of the British military, Russian coercion, and how I also found arguments about NATO and uh, gas prices as well. But, and I personally took the AF side because I'm against the Scottish independence movement. Even if we, the the average Scot is also against it. As we can tell that the Scottish Nationalist Party has lost seats to pro-unionist parties like the Labour and and the Tory party. And the Scottish Nationalist Party is pretty much collapsing right now. Most Hmm. people do not support it. Even if we don't look at the United Kingdom Supreme Court that has said Scotland is not allowed to have an independence rep- referendum without the United Kingdom's permission. The so, main arguments on the negation is Scotland was once a free country and that the majority of people, the Scottish independence movement nearly passed in 2014 and that movement has grown in popularity because of Brexit. So, it's wait. Mostly, so I'm I'm confused about like what the state of it is here because like you mentioned that it's growing in popularity since 2014 when it almost passed, but at the same time, you did talk about how the Scotland Nationalist Party is losing ground. So, is it just kind of like a kind of a split mix or polarization thing in Scotland or? So it was growing in popularity at 56, percent but now it's like dropped 49. Okay. So it's kind of like how certain movements become popular here and they become unpopular there. Like, if we look at movements such as the Black Panthers, they were supported in the 70s. Mm-hmm. But once they started doing, taking a knee during the national anthem, people are turned against them. This okay. is kind of the situation for the United Kingdom, to my knowledge. So what then, um, so you talked a lot about their, what the effects for the Scotland people would be and how the Scotland people feel about this, but this resolution specifically is, you know, Congress of the United States giving their opinion on it. So what kinds of things and what kind of arguments did you encounter for what the impact of the United States specifically expressing approval or disapproval So. What I found in approval was it would violate the United Kingdom's Supreme Court, and the United Kingdom is one of our closest partners. I also found, uh, as I mentioned earlier, the self-determination and how this could set a bad precedence. But for the negation, honestly, I don't really think the people of Scotland really care about the opinion of the United States, like most, fair. <laughs> like most people do. Mm-hmm. Like, if you went to Saudi Arabia and asked them, how do you feel about the United States, they'll be like, I either don't care or hate it. 
Yeah. That makes sense. Have anything you want to say on it, Walker? <laughs> I'm just listening. I find this all very interesting because I'm learning yeah. more than I knew previously you know, about Scotland's history of being independent. This is why you are our foreign affairs guru. Okay? <laughs> Th- this... James, this is why anytime there's a foreign affairs topic, I come to you. <laughs> and so this was published by the Daily Mail on July 2nd, 2020. It found that the Scot- Scottish Gaelic is at risk of dying out in a decade with only 11,000 speakers left. So that brings more encouragement. To but like, time. my question would be like, does Scottish political independence actually save their cultural issues? But... I, I would generally say you no, know, but also yes at the same time, because yeah. if we just look at how other languages have revived unanimously, like, look 80 years ago at Hebrew, for mm-hmm. example. Hitler wiped most of the Jewish people that spoke Hebrew out, but now Hebrew is the official language of Israel. But if That's... we look... If we look at how, a fair comparison. If we look at how Scotland ha- and the United Kingdom have tried to implement the Scottish Gaelic, it hasn't been it hasn't worked out well. There's not the same kind of support you see in Wales. Yeah. And I guess that would make sense given that in the case of Israel, um, like the Jewish people is a much larger type of nation of um of ethnic culture than just being scottish is so it'd probably be easier to revive hebrew than it is to revive gaelic especially since so many religions are tied to hebrew in some way uh article published by the bbc on july 31st 2018 said that the uk spent 27 million pounds a year to bring back the Scottish language from near death. And generally speaking, if you're spending that much a year and it's not working, I don't think it's a problem with finance. I yeah. think it's more of a problem with the culture. And culture. Yeah, that makes sense. So, if everyone feels good about that, um, I think... Uh. I have another thing to add to it. Another thing that helped the Scottish independence movement out is the British government had blocked gender reform laws. They, the UK Parliament, argued that this is solely a UK decision, not a Scottish decision. Mm-hmm. And this is like the first time it's ever happened. This is the first time the UK Parliament has ever intervened in Scotland since it's. Since Scotland got autonomy. So, wait, so they were intervening on the language? No, they were intervening on the gender reform. They blocked Scotland's gender reform laws. I see. So it's not Mm. just the tension of the EU or the tension of culture. It's also the tension of England can block laws that Scotland locally wants to enact and enforce. The next thing that I think we should probably go over then is things that we didn't like. Maybe specific bills, trends. Uh, We didn't have as specific of a prompt for this one. Um, And before the show, when we were talking, there was a lot of consensus that we had an abundance of unconstitutional bills. Yes, there were so many. Like, so often (laughs) we're presented with unconstitutional bills when we're in congressional debate because the kids... Like, people just don't take the time to make sure that their bill follows the Constitution or even make sure it follows the formatting that is required for NSDA bills. And what's funny is that, you know, some of them were problems where people just didn't understand how the Tenth Amendment worked or didn't understand what powers Congress has versus the presidency um, and didn't understand you know, what realms historically the federal government has been allowed to act in. And and those are particular parts of the legal code that it's, you know, excusable. Like all of the things that were fining states directly, 
even when the Supreme Court has not reached consensus about whether or not you can find states. But and not all of the ideas of the unconstitutional bills were terrible. There were good debate at an underlying point of it. It's just the yeah. way they laid it out. Yeah. So, anybody have good examples of unconstitutional um, ones? So, I think one of the best examples of the unconstitutional bill is uh, the lobbying one. Yeah. So, I'm, I'm going to pull for, that up while you're talking. For viewers that don't know about Citizens versus United, it basically determined that lobbying counts as free speech. Which is a heavily debated topic, whether it really does. But in Congress, we have to be constitutional, and that means we have to listen to the Supreme Court when it says, "This is this, that is that." You have no for, uh, no power over this piece of legislation. It the, can't even be enforced. Although there is something to be said for Congress standing up for a particular interpretation of the Constitution by mm -hmm. choosing to pass something that a previous Supreme Court has found unconstitutional. But, yeah, the lobbying one was really funny because I actually got the exact text of the bill pulled up, so I'll read it for you guys. Section 1. Lobbying will no longer be legal in the United States of America. This new bill would apply to all forms of office and government in that no politician should be allowed to accept any type of lobbying in any way, shape, or form. Sounds pretty good, you know, if you think of lobbying as bribing, but section two is where it gets fun. Lobbying is defined as seeking to influence a politician or a public official on any issue, usually through monetary means. But because it says usually, that means any other type of influence, including writing your representative, is considered lobby. And one of the most ironic things I found about this bill was that the first time it was debated that I was participating in, like, the first time that I ever got the chance to debate it, the week previously, my mother had gone and lobbied at Idaho's capital with our senators and representatives Sorry, your cat is to box. bring more representation and better, like, benefits to teachers in Idaho. Mm -hmm. And she went and lobbied and informed them about that as a representative of the teachers' union, which I just found completely ironic that that next week I'd be debating a bill to completely illegalize lobbying. And what's funny, too, is that the enforcement for the bill stated that the accused will be fined the amount involved with the lobbying act along with a 25% penalty on top, which is just so tricky to define. And I think speaks to the fact that there's a real general problem we have in our Congress district that people will often write these bills with very vague and difficult to define enforcement mechanisms or requirements that aren't very specific on what will and will not count in a certain way under the law. And obviously, on the high school level, we have the requirement of a single page, but it's nonetheless the case that you can get more specific than just find the amount involved with the lobbying act along with 25%. You know, you can they have, phrase it like they, they had the room to rephrase and define better the consequences of the bill. Yeah. One of the other, um, one of the other things that I found very fascinating was the number of bills that would fine states. Um, I'm pulling up. It was the interstate bill that you wrote this argument for, right? Yes, and it was pretty much a bill that said that all states found in violation would be fined a certain amount by the government per violation. Mm -hmm. um, which is, if you don't know. We found so many articles and, like, actual legal code that states how the government can withhold funds, but cannot technically by any definition fine a state. Yeah, and that's the really interesting thing about this enforcement mechanism, because I'm writing a bill right now that needs some kind of enforcement against states, and we'll probably discuss it at some point on here. It has to do with occupational licensing and the 14th Amendment. But under the 14th Amendment, even though Section 5 of the 14th Amendment says that Congress has the power to enforce that amendment upon the states, it still is unclear. Like, the Supreme Court still has not come to a decision on whether or not that means that Congress can fine states. 
they agree that it means that Congress can allow states to be sued by private entities and that it means that Congress can withhold funding. But defining states is something that's not quite very well defined there. Another bill I would like to cover is the the obvious disregard for the freedom of religion in the United States. Oh yeah, which... The bill to ban public displays of religion. Yeah. And I believe it was, um, wasn't it specific to schools? Uh, no. So, shoot, which, which tournament was that one? Because if I recall, Um, my chamber, when we came across that, essentially just there was a speech on it, it got voted down, and then we moved on. Um, I just remember it was generally very, like, very poorly written, and so obviously in violation of the First Amendment. Yeah. And there were... it wasn't even considered. And what's interesting is that we had ones that violated the First Amendment like that. Like, there was another one, you know, to a bill to increase information standards for internet communications, where you could be fined... Um, I forget the exact amount in the bill. I can pull it up as I'm speaking here. But you could be fined a significant amount of money for a single post on social media and just other types of bills like that that just caused, you know, numerous issues for the First Amendment, but uh-huh. did so in a blatantly... And the thing, like... the thing yeah, I $50 found... for each post that... Um, each $50 for each post that was seen as misinformation... And it didn't even define what misinformation counted as. And the other thing besides defining misinformation that I always found funny with the bills like that and around that was that they would often have the enforcement mechanism as the FCC. Mm -hmm. But I always found that really funny because the FCC's job is to regulate general TV and broadcasts, not social media whatsoever. And so it was giving this power and obligation to an entity that had currently no supervision or no idea of what they would be doing in the area that the bill was making them deal with. And so, and even with that, you can, I also found many articles on like how the FCC is generally a pretty small organization with only a couple thousand employees Mm-hmm. And then it was asking them to monitor all forms of social media for misinformation or things like that. And there were often, I think there were quite a few bills like that that came up throughout the season. Yeah. And what I think is interesting is that, you know, with all respect to our fellow Congress debaters who, whenever they talked about these bills, often had very convincing and very reasonable arguments for why actions like these would be good. Um Nonetheless, there was a lot of evidence that people either weren't putting in the time to or didn't understand how to properly format your bills, properly check for constitutionality, and also reference previous legislation. For example, the bill that talked about closing the gender wage gap, it didn't address any previous legislation and didn't, like, amend that legislation, like, say, the Equal Pay Act of 1963, it simply acted as if those laws hadn't existed. And even if those laws are showing failings, you still need to account for them in your bill writing. In, uh, so last year we had a bill sort of like this, and it was mostly brought up that the main reason why the gender wage gap exists as we know it is because, first... There's not enough women in STEM, and we're talking about the average women versus the average men, mm-hmm. and also childcare, which most bills I encounter about the gender wage gap do not address. Yeah. The Equal Pay Act of 1964 and the Equal Pay Act of 2009, they do everything that these members of Congress, congressional debaters, here's, write down, and even more. Yeah, and I think, like, you know, we can get into all the arguments about what the cause of a pay gap is, but 
and there was good legitimate debate on that, but just my feeling and sense throughout it was we would get bills like those where, you know, that's where the debate ought to be of what is the cause of the pay gap, what is the proper way to address it, when instead we would get bogged down in these conversations about this bill doesn't have a proper enforcement mechanism, it's unconstitutional, it doesn't account for previous legislation, yada, 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 when if people were educated better on how to write their bills, we could dig into the yes. meat of those deeper issues. So often we were left with bills with good ideas behind them, but not written to the point that there could be good debate. And yeah, like you were saying, instead of having the good debate and the well-researched debate that comes with well-researched bills, we ended up just arguing constitutionality on so many bills that probably could have had a broad area of debate and could have provoked like a lot of critical thinking within Mm -hmm. the Congress. And to be fair, there are some cases in which bills that... There are some cases in which bills that are arguably unconstitutional can lead to a lot of fascinating debate on constitutionality. For example, at the Black Snake Tournament, we had one that in my chamber was really fun, which was a bill to establish mandatory public service, kind of like a draft, but it applied to everyone in the U.S. And there was an argument made that it violated the 13th Amendment, and me and another guy were pitching the arguments that a draft is a form of slavery. And that's an, that's a topic that has a lot of really good ground on both sides and a lot of fascinating debate, um, in which case it is an argument about whether the bill is constitutional. But it's a lot of these ones that more blatantly violate the First Amendment, the Tenth Amendment, the Fourteenth, et cetera, et cetera, that, um, that cause a lot of difficulties. Um, what do you guys think would be like some recommendations, some things to focus on for people on our team and for the Congress circuit in general on writing bills next year that don't fall into these traps? So I would generally say that distinguishing between a resolution, a constitutional amendment, and a bill is a def- is definitely important. I'd also say researching the C- court's presidents is also an important theme as well Mm -hmm. i think with every bill i've written with all of the bills that i've been writing this trimester i like first go and make sure that it doesn't already exist or see why the problem is still existing even with legislation that's been put in place yeah and i feel like that's something that was also severely lacking in this season was the background research of knowing what solutions had already been posed and again looking at the supreme court and making sure that your bill wasn't in violation of previous precedents set by the supreme court and also for some of the bills honestly just looking up nsda bill outline or template and downloading the template so that you knew the recommended (laughs) size and template for a bill to be formatted because there were a lot of weird ones where like section two wouldn't be definitions even though NSDA mandates that section two is always definitions. Well, not, it doesn't like always that. have to be definitions in section two. Yeah, but, but typically it's just it like is. always, it's just a lot of things that were really, really simple that could have been an easy fix yeah. that would have made debate plausible. Mm-hmm. Especially since it's hard to debate a bill when it's not following the technicalities. Um, and I think all that stuff we're gonna have to bear in mind. Yeah. One of the things that for me was a big point is things that didn't cite any parts of the legal code, because if you look at legislation that actually gets debated and written and passed in state and federal legislatures, is that they are often citing particular parts of the legal code in the actual citation format that you're supposed to use. And we didn't have a lot of bills doing that. And for any other Congress debaters listening, if you want to use those kinds of citations, go to like Cornell Law, go to uscode.gov, ChatGPT, Walker and I found out recently, 
gives wonderful explanations like, of different parts of the legal code. Of course, where ChatGPT is, it's always just safe to fact check it, but I use yeah. it all the time for bill writing because it can point out some of the obvious flaws that you didn't see in the system and just kind of spark great ideas just by putting in a prompt. And I've even had it... I've even, like, pasted my bills into it previously and just had it reword it mm-hmm. and then review what that looks like. And it's actually been a great resource for bill writing as long as you just make sure to fact check it because sometimes it can make things up. <laughs> yeah. it And the whole hallucinating issue of ChatGPT is fun, but it does, it does help for asking about what different precedents are, what different parts of the legal code are, and... Just doing your general research to make sure that we have really high quality bills so then that debate can dive into the deeper issues versus just yeah. and I feel, Congress yeah. doesn't have the power for this. Because I feel like con- like congressional debate was made, the point of congressional debate was to discuss the real issues and real solutions to the real issues. And I feel like, at least in our area, it's kind of lost that over the last few seasons. Like, kind mm-hmm. of, it's kind of lost dealing with the mainstream issues. And I feel like, of course, you can still cover non-mainstream issues. That's not yeah. a problem. But now we're getting like bills that solve problems that are already non-issues on their own, and just bills that are really just getting in the way of solving the bigger problems in our country today. And I would generally say that a lot of the bills last year, they addressed real-world problems. They did all the things that you guys are talking about. Like, I can only think of a few examples where I can honestly say they didn't. Mm-hmm. But overall, I'd say we kind of did lose that this year. But I think we can regain it yeah. next year. And obviously, this year's bills were not a complete flop. I mean, we just spent, you know... Yeah. Like 30 minutes talking uh, about the ones that do great. Unrealistic amount of... We... Well, again, throughout the season, we spent so much time that could have been good debate just pointing out the flaws in bills because we didn't want to pass flawed legislation. Yeah. The yeah. amount of stuff we had to cite about why state... Why the federal government can't find states directly. Oh my goodness. Or at least it's <laughs> up in the air whether they can, so you probably shouldn't try. But... Yeah. So, do you guys want to leave them with that? Yeah. Sure. <laughs> cool. We loved some of the bills, and let's try and write better legislation. And we think some of the bills were okay and have better concepts behind them. And some of the bills, um, I'm just going to leave it at that. <laughs> all in all, we just hope this coming season is going to have a lot better debate than this season had. Thank you for listening to Counterplay. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate and review us on your podcast platform of choice or send a boost in using a new podcast app, which can be found on newpodcastapps.com. If you want to get in contact, you can email us at counterplan at proton.me or send a boost into the show with a message attached to it. Any messages or emails we get, we'll read out on the show and discuss. Thank you, and see you all next time.